Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Rick and Miso, for serving us today. Thank you, worship team, for serving us today. Thank you for being here today. Your faith is evident as you tackle the cold room this morning. So uh, thanks for your devotion to being together with us and worshiping the Lord. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. Let's begin with uh, reading a passage together. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. We'll read through verse 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father, this is the reading of your word. Give grace to preach it, give grace to hear and receive it, and let it produce fruit in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, bring us, each one, through these words, Lord, to that place that we read your words brought Mary's heart, that we would say, we're the servant of the Lord. Let it be to us according to your word. Work faith into our hearts this morning. Strengthen faith in our hearts this morning. Stir up, strengthen, cause to grow this seed that your spirit planted in our hearts so that we would learn to trust you and live for you, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our series this Advent season has been on miracle births. There are seven of them uh, listed in the Bible, and we're only going to look at two of them, the first and the last. Last week, we talked about the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, and we tracked with Sarah in particular her faith, how the Lord interacted with her and how that strengthened her faith and the process by which she came to, to trust the Lord and to be able to say, nothing's too wonderful for the Lord. This week, I want to look at Jesus, 
but in particular, Mary giving birth to Jesus. And again, same idea. How the Lord interacted with her and how she responded to the Lord and how her faith developed, grew, and was strengthened to bring her to the place of trusting. As Bill said, next week Lynn Baird is going to be back to preach. I know many of you miss him as he retired some months ago, coming back to bring God's word to us, uh, talking about really the most personalized kind of miracle birth, yours and my rebirth, the work of the Spirit to regenerate and make us new. So you can look forward to that. The miracle births in the Bible, they always focus on, point to a kind of benchmark in God's plan. Every time a child is born to a barren woman, every time it's a miracle birth, you know what's going on here. The Lord is putting his finger, drawing attention to, uh, creating a benchmark for his plan. He wants the whole world to know. He wants everybody involved. When you see, when a, when a barren world, woman gives birth to a child, you know God is saying, here, I want you to dr be drawn attention to the plan and the promises of God. They also make a dramatic point every time that these things require divine and supernatural intervention, that it cannot be accomplished through human effort. That is sort of the lesson to be learned. God has a plan. He, he's made promises. He's going to carry out this plan. He's going to fulfill these promises, but he wants to make it absolutely clear. These things are not going to come about by your human effort. They're not going to come about by natural means. You need to understand it. It requires divine intervention. God is involved. God made the plan. He made the promises. He comes and fulfills them. And so it creates this expectation. If this is going to happen, it's going to have to be God who brings it about. This morning we're looking at the last miracle birth given to us in the scripture, and it certainly is the greatest miracle birth, the birth of Jesus. It's the reason why we celebrate Christmas each year. Like every other miracle birth in the Bible, this one, in an even unusually in an unusual way, points to God's plan. In fact, this birth is the fulfillment of God's plan. It's not just a birth pointing to something. It actually, it is the plan. It is central to the plan. And it shows the divine and supernatural intervention for this birth to take place. The goal this morning is that by God's grace, you and I will see this, apprehend it, and it will increase our faith that we will trust him even more. The passage that we read in Luke is known as the Annunciation, where God sends an angel, specifically the angel Gabriel, to announce to Mary that she will give birth to a son who will be the savior of the world. We look again at another remarkable woman in the scriptures, this time Mary whose situation draws attention to God's promises and plan and teaches us what it means to trust the Lord. Two points this morning. Who is this child and how do we believe? We'll look at Mary's example to instruct us. How do we believe? How do we grow in faith? So who is this child and how do we believe? 
We need to understand this about faith. The reason these two points I'm putting forward is because they're, they're so vitally connected. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing specifically in more detail, understanding who this son will be that Mary is going to bring into the world, it's, it's the source, it's the object of our faith. So the goal is to encourage your faith this morning. But I understand and I have conversations and I hear people and they talk about faith as if it is this kind of thing that you either just, you have it or you don't. And all too often somebody who is a Christian wakes up one day or finds himself in a situation where they lack faith, their faith is stumbling or crumbling or wayward or something, and, and there is a, a sense of sort of just sort of giving up. I, like, I guess I just don't have it. Like faith is this kind of pixie dust that just happens to get sprinkled on you and you have it or you don't. But what it actually is is while it is a gift of the Spirit sparked in a heart, we need to understand the aspect of faith is that it is something that grows. It is like a seed planted in a heart, in your heart, something that needs to be cultivated, something that needs to be strengthened and built and worked and exercised so that it can grow stronger and larger. The understanding about the object of our faith and the faith itself go hand in hand together. You can't separate them. You can't talk about faith. You can't think about faith without tying it directly to its object. So we want to look first at who this child is because the child is the object of our faith. We don't want to think about faith or talk about faith separate from who the faith is in. By God's grace, that will help us land where Mary landed. So who is this child? This annunciation actually begins sort of a fresh understanding of who Jesus is, a fresh understanding of the Messiah. There's lots in the Old Testament that help prepare us for understanding who the Messiah is, but this announcement, this time when the angel shows up and begins saying things to Mary about this is what's going to happen, it really does start a fresh chapter and give great insight into who Jesus is. And Gabriel visits this young girl and says, you're going to bear a son. Call his name Jesus. This is the name I want you to give him. Name him Jesus because the name Jesus means salvation. Now, it may have been a common name, but with God and in the Scriptures, Names are quite important. Uh, it's not like when you and I have kids and we name our children. So I just kind of like the sound of it. Or we have a relative with that name. Or it flows well with our last name. And so we pick that name. What's unusual is when God says, give them this name. When God designates a name, he's designating a purpose and a plan. He's saying, this, I give this person this name because this name describes what I'm doing in their life. And the angel says to Mary, he will be great. 
This annunciation is actually beginning to lay the foundation for something so unusual about Jesus. We talk about it as his dual nature, his two natures. The fact that he is both human and divine, both simultaneously, both fully, both without compromising the other. He is talking to a young girl and saying, you're going to bear a son, human, but he's going to be a savior. He's going to be a son of the most high. He's going to be great. He's going to be the son of God, divinity. He's going to be great. And in fact, that aspect actually is a key aspect of his greatness. The greatness is shown in his condescension. The fact that God would take on human flesh, that God would condescend and come down and become one like us, that is his greatness. Because he is so far above, because he is so far other than us, and yet willing to come down and take on our form. We're not able to ascend to his plane, to where he is, to his level. We're not great. He is great, not just because he is at that level. He is great because at that level he's willing to come down to ours. Greatness here means more than just being above us. It also means his willingness to be made low for us. Of course, the real uniqueness of this divine and human nature that's coming with Jesus, with all the names and the titles and the terms used to describe Jesus, it's really the conception of the child that tops it all off. When Mary asks, how is this going to be? Well, it's the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Fathered by divinity, mothered by humanity. A quote from Stephen Sharnock, a Puritan author, about this wonderful aspect. He writes, what a wonder that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world. More united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation, he concludes, astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. There is something so unusually great about this child. This announcement to Mary, Gabriel is revealing to her, there is something highly unusual, something totally unique about this child, this son that you are going to bring into the world. Gabriel also tells her that God is going to give to him the throne to a kingdom 
that will never end. So Gabriel, in a sense, moves from his identity and now begins to share as well about his role. This is who he is. This is what he's going to do. He's going to be a king that reigns. He's going to be given the throne of David. Luke makes much about David and Jesus being a descendant of David. And here, Jesus is going to take up the throne of David when God promised to David there will be someone on your throne forever that was pointing to this boy that was going to be born to this woman, Mary. David, the one king in Israel's history who was talked about as a man after God's own heart, who longed to please the Lord, who loved the people, who had God's blessing on him to go out and lead God's people into victories. And the one to whom God made a covenant to establish this throne forever. There's a wonderful proverb in chapter 29 of Proverbs verse 2. It says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. When the righteous increase, that word increase is often referred to a level of influence. So there are some English translations that would say, when the righteous rule the people rejoice. And that gives the, a proverb to this reality of what Gabriel is announcing here to Mary. Jesus is going to take up a throne. Here's the righteous one who's going to rule, and when he rules, the people will rejoice. So who is this child? He's the one who is going to rule. Oh, and with that, He's the one you want to rule. You want him on that throne. The source of our rejoicing as a people under his authority comes because God has placed him on the throne. God has given him the throne, put him in authority, put him in charge. Oh, and when we have the right man in charge, then we're at peace. The land is at peace. Then we prosper. Then there's blessing. Then the people rejoice. So there's my first point. Why is that so important? Why lay that foundation? Why talk about, again, who is Jesus? Because our faith that we're called to rests upon that. The faith, the trust that you and I are supposed to live out of, the, the devotion in our lives that springs from the faith we have, all that faith rests in those realities about who Jesus is. Our call to follow Jesus makes no sense without recognizing who Jesus is. Isn't that the challenge sometimes we fall into as Christians? We're trying to be good Christians. We're trying to be a follower of Jesus. But sometimes we lose sight of the realities of who Jesus is. And we, we separate and we, we forget the reality is it is in recognizing who Jesus is. It's being saturated with this glory of this one that Gabriel is announcing. That's the key to growing in faith, having faith, and being able to live out of faith. You can't separate those things. If you're here this morning and you've, you find that your, your faith is weak, your faith is wavering, maybe you walked in the door this morning and said, I don't have any faith. You won't get it and you won't grow in it by focusing on the faith. 
You gain it and you grow in it and you mature in it by focusing on the object of that faith. Let Jesus be the one you look to. Faith is weak. Spend more time in the Gospels. Read about Jesus. Read what he said. Read about what he did, who he was. Watch him. Learn. Take it in. Let Jesus be the lens that you read all of the Bible through, that it is all about him. Find good books that focus on who Jesus is. We referenced a couple weeks ago, Knowing Christ by Mark Jones. There's another book, Christ Alone by Stephen Wellham. Great book. And Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ by John Piper. There's, there's good books out there. What happens when your faith is weak? Oh, press in and look more to him. Don't get caught up focusing on your faith. Oh, my weak faith. Where's my faith? How's my faith? Don't just get zeroed in on the object of your faith and you'll find it growing and growing stronger and stronger. Well, let's turn to point two. Let's look at Mary's response. Let's think about how to believe because Mary is going through a process. As Gabriel is laying out the realities of what's going to happen to her, and laying out the significance of who this son is that she will give birth to, we also get, again, a glimpse of what's going on with Mary as we see her responding and interacting. Mary gets a visitor. It's an angel. Doesn't happen every day. She's a young woman, recently engaged to be married, possibly in her early teenage years. Not uncommon at this time, 12 to 14 years old, to be betrothed, to be engaged, to be married. We don't know exactly how old she was, but she certainly could have been a teenager as this event was taking place. And so the angel comes, and how does she respond? The first thing the text tells us is that she was greatly troubled. No kidding. Gabriel shows up in your room, starts telling you a story. She is perplexed. But the text explains to us she wasn't perplexed because she was visited by an angel. It's the greeting that got her all befuddled. It's the greeting that got her troubled. When Gabriel shows up, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. That's what threw her off. That's what got her so perplexed. When Luke, who's writing this, lays this out, he seems to make a point of every time he introduces a character, he talks about their pedigree. He lists off Zacharias and Elizabeth and Joseph, all how they're related under the priesthood, under Aaron, uh, under David, and so forth, but not Mary. When he gets to Mary, no pedigree. It's not that she didn't have it, but Luke is not listing it. Luke is writing it in such a way that Mary shows up, in a sense, as being the only one who really doesn't have a leg to stand on as far as the favor of God. In other words, he's trying to describe everybody's pedigree. You can understand why this person is involved in the story here, because they're a descendant of so-and-so, because they're in the line. They're in the path of God's grace. Here's where they line up, and here's why. And then we have Mary, no pedigree. No identity markers, 
no reason to think that this young girl is some way, shape, or form qualified for the favor of God. But the greeting is not a saying that says, Oh, Mary, you have so much of the grace of God. No, it is a statement that is saying, Mary, you are being bestowed upon so much of the grace of God. It wasn't Gabriel showing up and saying, I've been looking all over for somebody so worthy, and I finally found the young girl who was so worthy so that I could pronounce this. It's the opposite. He's coming and saying, this is coming to you. It's a little bit like the story of the angel that came to the man Gideon. I don't know if you remember the story back in the book of Judges. Uh, Gideon was part of Israel and they were being overrun by the Midianites. They were being oppressed. And so everybody was sort of hiding and scared. And, and it says Gideon was hiding down in a wine press, threshing out wheat. The Midians would come and steal their wheat and so he had to hide. So he, you have this picture of, of sort of a, by appearances, a cowardly man hiding in this hole, threshing out wheat, trying to keep it all secret. And then the angel shows up and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon is perplexed. What in the world are you talking about? We are oppressed. We are hiding. We're scared. We're being robbed. Everything is wrong. What in the world kind of a statement is this mighty man of valor. It was a pronouncement upon him, not a declaration of what they saw in him. Mary's perplexity was a why me kind of perplexity. Folks, this is the essential starting point for genuine faith. Why me? Why? Why would God come to me? Why would God's grace show up in my life? This quiet kid, son of Dutch immigrants, introverted, born to atheist parents. Why? would God's grace find its way into my life? I don't know. It's amazing that it did. It's amazing that he did. Mary starts with a genuine kind of humility that shows up. And it's like, I'm perplexed. I don't know why you're coming to me. Jesus taught that this kind of humility is really a key evidence of God's grace in our lives. In Luke chapter 18, you remember the story about the two guys praying in the temple. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Pharisees were holy men. Tax collectors were lousy men, hated men, despised men. They were at opposite ends of the spectrum. And the tax collector is on one side, and the Pharisee begins to pray and says, Oh, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like him. And the tax collector prays, but doesn't even lift his head, beats his breast, and said, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. And Jesus describes this thing and says it was the tax collector who went home justified. Because that humility is a mark and an evidence of God's grace at work. Angelic visitations might well be perplexing. I'm sure I would have been troubled and perplexed had Gabriel shown up in my bedroom one night. But it's not nearly as perplexing as the reality of God's grace coming in and showing favor to a sinner like you or me. This is not some kind of put-on, self-deprecating, false humility kind of an attitude. It is a sincere, genuine sense of, Lord, why me? Why did you choose me? Why did you speak to me? Why did I hear it? Why did I hear it in such a way that it awakened my soul? A true sense of genuine humility is the right starting point to faith. If you don't see that yet, if you don't realize that yet about yourself, if you're a little bit glib, of course God loves me. Of course he would show me favor. Why wouldn't he? You're not seeing it clearly yet. Not him, not yourself. But the more we see of him, the more we see of ourselves, and the more that genuine sense of, oh Lord, I can't believe it. Why me? Enters into your soul. Secondly, she thinks. She tries to understand what does this mean. She is processing. So first, she's troubled. That explains how she felt. Now she seeks to understand. She has, she's having an experience. She's having some emotional response. I'm troubled. I'm perplexed. That's how she felt. But now it says she begins to make sense out of it all. She's pondering, what could this mean? She's trying to reckon it. She's trying to understand it. Now she's trying to think through the details and put words to it and understanding, adding understanding to what she's personally experiencing. Folks, I hope you know and always remember that Christianity is a unique blend of personal experience as well as knowledge. Knowing Christ involves both. And one is spoiled if the other doesn't exist. One side by itself is not how it works. It's not sufficient. It's not the real thing. I meet with a few guys weekly. We have a little book group. We're reading through some Lloyd-Jones. And this past week, the chapter was about mysticism. And Lloyd-Jones was giving a description of what, how he defines mysticism. And he talks about pursuing only a feeling when it comes to knowing God and leaving out the intellect and the reasoning and the understanding. I just want to feel God. I just want to experience God. I don't want to understand who he is. That's one side of the problem. Another side, just as much a problem, is that I want to comprehend and understand, but I don't want the experience of knowing him. Neither knowing him and remaining unmoved or feeling very moved but lacking any real knowledge, neither one is genuine Christianity. Neither one is the goal. Neither one is where we want to be. It's not merely feeling that God loves me. 
It's an understanding that he loves me because he sent his son to die and save me. I come to know what it means, what he's done, and that that shows his love for me, and that's why I sense his love. That's why I have an experiential feeling sense of his love, because I know what he did for me. I know that he did it, so therefore I feel it. I feel it because I know that he did it. It's an informed sense that moves the heart is the combination that Christianity brings us into. Are you trying to form a faith that is one and not the other? Do you find yourself saying things like, well, who needs all that doctrine anyway? I just want to bask in the love of God. Or, you on the other side, you love getting your theological ducks in a row. You feel very comfortable inside when you've got it all figured out, and yet each one of those doctrines lacks a full impact into your life where it's changing the way you live, respond, feel, talk, act. The two work together. The two are linked together. Mary was certainly having an experience with God. And then she begins to think, what does this really mean? I need to understand what this means. I need to understand what God is doing. From there, she asks questions. How can this be? Mary, you've never been with a man not married yet, just engaged, you're going to have a son. Excuse me, Gabriel, just one question. How can this be? Now, apparently this question is different than Zachariah's question. There is the account of an angel visiting Zachariah in the temple, and we have the the birth announcement for Zachariah and Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist, and now we have Joseph and Mary giving birth to Jesus and Luke writes in such a way that these two stories are really running side by side there's so many parallels between them we we could have spent easily 20 minutes just just comparing the two and seeing how they sync so well together and the bottom line is simply that God is saying and Luke is writing in such a way that so you and I will understand these two miracle births are one and part of the same story of what God is doing but in the story of Zechariah He asked a question as well. Apparently his question was a little bit different. As we read it, it's a little bit difficult to understand. Why was his question responded to so differently than Mary's question? And yet when the angel responds to Zechariah and says, you will not speak, you will be mute until John is born, says, because you did not believe my words. Apparently, there's a difference between a question that may have even the exact same words but a different heart behind it. One question coming from unbelief and another question coming from just a sincere inquiry. How can this be? It's not that I don't believe it. It's that I want to understand it. Explain it to me. How can this be true? How will this take place? 
So there's a night and day difference between a seeking heart and an unbelieving heart. And Mary shows us that questions are welcome. Did you know that? Did you know that questions are welcome? Do you understand that it's okay to ask a question? It really is. I've been hearing more and more deconstruction stories, people leaving the faith, leaving the church, and coming back with a sort of accusation. I wasn't allowed to ask questions. I went to this church, but as soon as I asked questions, I got pushed out. I want you to know, friends, this needs to be a place where there's room to ask questions. That's part of growing in our faith and understanding who is Jesus. We've got to be free to ask questions. But notice this, Mary brings her questions to the Lord. Mary didn't have an encounter with Gabriel, and Gabriel told her these fantastic things, and she said, oh, just hold on a minute. Now let me go check with the Greek philosophers and see what they have to say about angelic visits and virgin births. Let me Google it and let me go to this YouTube channel and see what they have to say and what this. Let me check with the Romans and see how they view these kinds of things and I'll get back to you. She takes her questions to the Lord. Gabriel is there, sent by the Lord, representing God, and she says to him, how can this be? She wanted to know how God was going to do something, and so she asks God's representative how he's going to do it. Could I bring a caution? It's good to ask questions. We all need the freedom to ask questions. We should all think carefully and consider where are we going to for answers to these questions. This is why, folks, our convictions about the Bible are so adamant, so strong, how we keep laying those foundations down again because we've been given a source for who, about who God, that tells us who God is and what is his plan and how is he going to bring it about. So we have this source of objective truth that we can turn to and look to for answers to our questions. They are so reliable, it's, they are inspired by God, so it's as if God said them to respond to the scriptures and the truths and to understand how they're communicating those truths and the truths that they're communicating. It's as if God himself spoke those very words. Do you notice in this short little interaction that we read, can you see how Mary's faith is growing and maturing we can take this short encounter and you can extrapolate it out into your life into my life and, and realize look this is what happens we experience things with God we try to comprehend and understand and so we see clarity and we gain understanding about what God is and who he is and we ask questions how can this be this doesn't make sense to me you're saying this but humanly speaking, that doesn't make any sense. Tell me, how is this going to take place? Seeking, inquiring, asking questions, listening. Faith is something that's cultivated. 
It matures over time. It grows, it deepens, it gets strengthened as we engage in the process of learning and growing in our understanding. We should never neglect it and never resign ourselves to simply say, well, I guess I just don't have it. Oh, I struggle with believing. I struggle with trusting. I'm not sure I can believe that. And we resign. I guess I just don't have it. This brings us to the wonderful ending spot where Mary is saying she trusts. Fourth thing in Mary's process here. She trusts, she surrenders, she submitted. She ends with a resolved heart. She goes through her process. She ponders, she thinks, she responds, she asks questions. And then her heart becomes resolved. I'm the Lord's servant. Knowing the position of the son that she is about to give birth to lets her know her position with that son. Strong language. I'm, a, I'm the bondservant of the Lord. Devoted, committed for life totally surrendered to, submitted to. I am owned by him. I am all his. There's another kind of response to God's grace. Maybe some of us have dabbled in it. Maybe you've heard it. It goes something like this. Lord, I'm so glad you showed up in my life. I have such big plans for myself. And I've been looking for someone to help me with these plans, to help make it happen. I wasn't sure I could pull it off by myself, and I was looking for someone who was good and powerful and supernatural, who loves me like no other. And so I'm so glad you're here so that you can work with me on my plans and help bring this all about. So here, here, here's the list of what I need from you. Just know this, if God is your servant, it's just a matter of time before you become convinced that he's let you down. It's just a matter of time before you become convinced that God has betrayed you. If your approach to God is that he is your bondservant, it's just a matter of time. I see where this is going. We can predict it today. It's just a matter of time before you end up being so disappointed God will not sit in that seat he cannot sit in that seat he cannot sit in that co-pilot seat he's the Lord the very essence of who he is insists in the role that he must be in he is in he cannot be other than the Lord and so Mary begins to recognize this and she surrenders herself to him, I'm the Lord's servant, and let it be to me according to your word. It's hard for us to comprehend what that must have meant to this young girl. Go ahead, God, do what you're saying, do what you're going to do here. But we don't realize that she probably had in her mind the reality that she was signing up for a life of disgrace 
a life of loneliness. You know, we tend to think today, if the teenager gets pregnant, the honorable thing for the guy to do is to quickly marry her, but apparently it was quite the opposite. We read in the scriptures that Joseph, thinking it to be the honorable thing, was going to quietly divorce her. If this plays out the way Mary understands it's going to play out, she must have realized, I probably won't get Joseph out of this deal. He'll be gone. I'll probably be alone. I'll have to live with the stigma of being a single mom, an unwed mom, a teenager with a baby. The economic hardship that I'm bound to be entering into is going to be difficult. My standing in society, my economic standing, my family standing, everything must have looked quite bleak at that moment. All indications are Mary was going to lose out big time in this deal. And yet, oh Mary, you're highly favored. You're highly favored. The Lord is with you. And somehow all that reality, all that reality was enough for Mary to say, let it be. Let it happen. Let it take place. I'm, I'm more than willing. I'm yours. I'm surrendered. I give you my life. Do with it whatever pleases you. What a sweet, wonderful place to be to realize that the grace of God coming into our lives is worth far more than any blessing, any provision, anything that this world would have to offer us. I invite the worship team to come on up as we close. Because, friends, this is what you and I are called to as well. I realize there's probably not too many of us in the room that had a visitation from an angel, not to mention it being Gabriel. I'm sure that there's not a woman in the place that has immaculately conceived a child, and I'm sure that nobody in the room is the mother of Jesus. And yet, and yet we see Mary and we see the grace of God coming to her life. We see her wrestling with, challenged by, interacting with, pressing into, and coming through to a place of wonderful trust and submission. And friends, that's precisely, precisely what the grace of God is meant to do in your life and in mine. She got an angel. You got the gospel. Somebody presented God's grace to you. The good news of God's grace in Christ. Somebody, sometime, even if this is the first time, came into your life with the grace of God, presenting to you the grace of God. And maybe it troubled you. Maybe it bewildered you. Maybe it perplexed you. Maybe it caused you to fear, feel terrified. But hopefully... From there, you sought to understand. Maybe somebody helped you understand. 
And the realities of the gospel begin to take shape and begin to take form and the understanding begin to be added to this message. And I hope you've asked some questions along the way. I hope you've processed those questions. And I hope that you've taken those questions to the Lord, not away from the Lord, but, but to Him. If you want to know about the grace of God, go to the Lord. If you want to know about Jesus Christ, go to Jesus Christ and ask your questions. And may the work of God's Spirit find that process through to you that brings your life, my life, your heart, my heart to that place of that sweet, sweet surrender. I'm yours, Lord. Take my life. What, what is my life except to give it to you for you to use how it pleases you? May by God's grace, each one of us each one of us in this room come to that place and be able to say, like Mary said, I'm the Lord's servant. Are you the Lord's servant? May it be to me according to your word. Let's stand together as we close.